Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, Today, my guests are Baker Perry. Uh, He's a co-lead of the meteorology team on the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Everest expedition. Uh, He was on the high-altitude climbing team that installed the world's highest weather station. Perry is a professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. Uh, He's led or co-led 21 research expeditions in the tropical Andes and Along with local collaborators, he's installed and maintained five meteorological stations at an elevation of 5,000 meters, which, uh, quick calculation, is uh, probably about 18,000 feet, so it's pretty high up. And then uh, Tom Matthews, uh, he's also a National Geographic explorer, or was the co-lead of a meteorology team on National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Everest Expedition as well. Uh, He was on the high-altitude climbing team that also installed some of these weather stations, the highest in the world on Mount Everest. Uh, Matthews is a climate scientist and a lecturer at Loughborough University uh, in the UK. Is an interest in uh, glacier climate interaction. Uh, Matthews also ex- uh, researches extreme weather from storms to heat waves, and he's working on improving public communication on climate change. Uh, for today's interview, I just have uh, Baker Perry, though. Uh, Tom wasn't able to make it, but I uh, wanted to make sure that uh, he was also mentioned. So, Baker, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Hi, Richard. It's certainly a pleasure to be here. I look forward to talking. Yeah. So um, have you uh, climbed Mount Everest yourself, like the whole way? And how, how often are you out there mountaineering and stuff? Well, I uh, have been a, a lifelong mountaineer, but have only been on Everest uh, one year. And that was last year with the National Geographic Expedition. And uh, we did not make it to the summit, but we did successfully install the highest weather station in the world at the balcony, uh, which is about um, 1,300 feet or so below the the summit. And uh, it was my first time above base camp on Mount Everest, but I had been to the Everest region uh, once before. I I do have much more experience in the Andes, Peru and Bolivia, uh, multiple expeditions of weather stations set up there previously. Uh, but, you know, ha- having the opportunity to go to Everest uh, with such a multidisciplinary uh, expedition with National Geographic was uh, was quite an experience, to say the least. Oh, yeah. W- were you guys uh, going to try the summit if you could, or were you not even thinking about doing that? Well, the, the summit was always there. The That was certainly not the major goal of the expedition. We had a number of, uh, well, we had two major sites that we were considering for installation of the highest station. One was the South Summit, which again was not on the summit itself. The summit is, you know, it really wasn't practical or feasible to install a weather station at the summit because snow up there and we needed uh, rock to anchor into. Also, it's it's it, when it's not appropriate necessarily either due to the 
Um, you know, the fact it's, it's uh, the highest point, there's symbolic importance to it. And so from a space consideration and other considerations, we'd never really looked at the summit itself. The South Summit was possible and the balcony was a site as well. And so we opted for the balcony simply because the traffic jam, the slow pace of the line ahead of us just did not allow us to get up quite as high. To- okay, yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect you to put an antenna at the summit. And you're right, you know, then you'd have like a, maybe an Empire State Building situation or a Chrysler building where they put the antenna to make it higher than the other building. That's not the point. I, I understand it would, it would probably ruin things for a lot of people wanting to summit it if you did, but just personally, I wondered if you wanted to summon it to say you did and to just, since you were close. Yeah, I mean, personally, certainly there, there was a, an interest in, um, in, in trying to get up to the summit, but that was secondary to uh, fulfilling the scientific objectives. And so our approach all along was, okay, if, if you know, we have the time, we have the oxygen, the route is in a favorable condition, and we're able to complete our scientific object, objective with the installation of the weather station, then, yeah, I think that would be something to consider, but uh, that was not the primary reason we were there. Right. So what does the weather station consist of? Was it a, a whole big unit, or was it an antenna, or what is it? Why did you put it in there? Yeah, so we, we actually installed a network of five weather stations, uh, starting in the community of Fortse, which is at 12,000 feet and uh, going all the way up to the balcony. And the lower two stations were, were much more involved and they had a set of comprehensive um, sensors to measure precipitation and precipitation phase or the, you know, whether it's raining or snowing. Uh, we also had snow depth sensors with it and then standard meteorological uh, instrumentation, so wind speed sensors, temperature, relative humidity, pressure, solar radiation. And then as we moved up from the second highest station, which was at base camp, we moved to, station, to camp two. And at camp two, we we're obviously limited by the amount of uh, equipment that we that we can take there. And the site itself is a bit more limited. We were just uh, all we all we could really find was a small outcrop of a rock to anchor things onto, and uh, and so by design we had to cut down the sensor that uh, we took up to camp two. Now it was still possible to use some conventional tripods that could be flown in on a helicopter. But above Camp 2 is where it got really interesting, you know, up at 26,000 feet and 27,600 or so, certainly no helicopter can drop a load there. And we're limited to what can be carried on our Sherpa's back. And so the design that we came up with for those upper two stations consisted of a very lightweight tripod uh, of aluminum that had been engineered. Then we also had a, a separate Pelican case for a data, data logger for the brains of the weather station. And then another Pelican case consisted of a battery and a charge. Con- and then those were bolted directly to the rock, the lowest levels. The rest of the station we built on the tripod of two solar panels. One was oriented uh, due south, the other south uh, oriented. And then we had two different temperature sensors, one relative humidity sensor, a pressure sensor, 
at one of the stations at the South Call, we had a solar radiation sensor, and uh, then we had a wind sensor. And so, Did you have an oxygen sensor? No, no, we don't have oxygen, but from the pressure sensor, we can, uh, uh, that, that's a pretty good, just the overall atmospheric pressure is pretty good. What was the reason for putting it in? Was it that no one knows what the weather's like, you know, at that elevation, or is it just to provide a lot more accurate weather conditions on average? Yeah, it's a combination of factors. I think you're absolutely right. And the first statement is that we we really don't know uh, what the uh, conditions are up at some of these highest elevations in terms of weather and, and longer term climate. You know, even though the there's huge volume of ice stored as in glaciers up in the Himalayas, uh, there are only a handful of weather stations that uh, are found at those elevations. And prior to our expedition, there were there was no weather station up at the highest elevation above about 21,000 feet. And so our installation certainly fulfilled a, a critical void in just data coming in. I mean, it's one thing to have data from uh, aircraft and satellites and weather balloons over the atmosphere. And we have some of those observations across South Asia and the world, but but that's that's not the same thing. We're talking about direct surface observation in these mountains. Observation are absolutely critical for understanding how the climate is changing and also improving uh, forecast models and, and models of uh, glacier change give us a sense of what the water picture may look like down the road. But now the other point you reference is that these weather stations also play a critical role in uh, climber safety. And uh, there've been a couple of attempts previously to monitor weather conditions. The South Call, the Italian the station in 2008, the 6,000 highest weather world for quite some time and last year. And so we have some intermittent observation from that effort, but they were not continuous. And ultimately that station was destroyed by small pieces of rock being picked up and uh, hurled against it. And so we don't have as long a record or as a complete a record as we would like. And so our network installed uh, gives us uh, real-time observation. And with the amount of time they've already been set up, we have observation directly compare with forecast models. And in a paper we've uh, recently published in the Bulletin of American Meteorological, we uh, show how our observations have already, can already be used to improve the weather forecast. And ultimately, we hope that that'll improve a climber safety, allow climate decision on when the best windows are go for them. Um, so how long has this, uh, these weather stations been active since you put them up there? And any interesting insights, you know, at, at night, the pressure drops so much that, uh, you know, it's too dangerous to go or like what, what's been noticed? Yeah, so these, uh, these stations have been up for just over a year. And uh, we completed the uh, highest installations uh, at the end of May in 2019. And, and yeah, some of the insights that uh, we've learned, I mean, one of the uh, ones that we report in a recently published paper is that the solar radiation, coming solar radiation is incredibly, and you know, when I say intense, I mean, those, of, those that have climbed and spent time at, at altitude, especially in the uh, Himalayas or perhaps in the tropics and the Andes, know that the sun is intense, okay? And you feel that when you're out there in it. But to actually have measurements to, to quantify this up at 26,000 feet, 
uh, puts it in a little bit of different perspective in the sense that the measurements that we have made, the observations that we have up there, weather station tell us that at times the solar radiation is more intense than what we expect at the top of the atmosphere. And the reason for this, presumably, we think at least, is that there's multiple reflection coming in. There's multiple pathways from adjacent snow-covered, snow and ice-covered slopes in clouds that can uh, result in incredible intensity. And the significance, the broader significance of this is that even when temperatures are well below freezing at uh, lower on the mountain and higher up on the mountain, even when those temperatures are well below free, melting can still occur due to this very intense solar radiation. And so, so that's, that's a very interesting finding, huge relevance for glacier, projected glacier change in decades. In fact, that there's already melting occurring, even though the freezing level is well, well below tops of peaks uh, indicates that some of the models that are used to project future changes in glacier extent uh, may need to be revisited. Yeah, I don't know if this is the case, but I wonder if uh, because of the solar radiation up there, if oxygen is broken and turned into ozone and if people are up there, they're literally breathing a different air chemistry. Maybe the, you know, nitrous oxide is formed more and, you know, maybe it's not just less oxygen that's a problem up there, but maybe you're literally breathing Nox, socks, ozone, et cetera, and that's part of the problem. Well, there is some, some recent work that my colleague Tom Matthews is leading does suggest that the ozone um, values up there are exceptionally high, particularly during the spring climbing season. So, there, yeah, there, there may be some other interesting um, um, facts that come out of these analyses and these observations. I think that's the tip of the iceberg with, with some of our work, especially as our colleagues on the biology side and on the glaciology side begin to dig into their data a bit more and be some really interesting. Yeah, does this suggest, you know, in terms of climate safety, does this now suggest the best times to summit and times to avoid and you know, will you coordinate this where, let's say, you know, a group wants to summit, I would think they would check this weather station first, and then they would tell them, all right, now's a good time, or no, 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 don't, don't summit now, it's very dangerous for various reasons. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that was one of the motivations on the National Geographic side from the beginning, is to have a, a way to provide real-time observation from these areas. And, you know, we, we continue to work closely with the government of Nepal, in particular their Department of Hydrology and Urology, to share these insights, share the data. And uh, there, uh, there's hope that uh, they will then use these insights to issue a more detailed uh, climber forecast for the region. And certainly, as the data are publicly available in real time and the publication we're working on distributed to a wide audience, the hope is that the, that the private sector meteorologists also forecasting for expeditions will be able to also, that can improve the decision on the mountain. That's, that's certainly our hope. I wonder if um, you can make a miniature weather station that you could sew onto a pack or onto someone's hat or glove or something. So literally, you could monitor as they go all the way up, you know, up and down from the summit, at least, you know, places you normally wouldn't put a permanent weather station, what their personal climate is like. And I wonder if that would be an interesting to do, thing to do if it could be done to, uh, to get more data. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is a growing uh, opportunity using personal sensor, micro sensors. You know, I've got some colleagues that are, are using some of these for stress and cold stress occupational states. And 
you know, we did carry some sensors um, uh, that actually, you know, I, I could super small, you know, maybe two inches long sensor that, that has a, a data logger inside it. And there's a temperature probe that extends from it that uh, then I would, would carry, I would, I would put that outside my pack. And so we did experiment some with that. And uh, the, the problem, one of the major problems with temperature, at least, is that uh, because of the intense solar radiation, that these, uh, any sort of temperature probe needs a radiation shield. It needs to be shielded from the intense radiation to get a measurement. That, that's one of the major challenges. Um, but certainly there's, there's opportunities to do that. Uh, that be more mainstream. Have people quantified the physiological impact of summoning, you know, in terms of um, amount of extra radiation absorbed, in terms of, uh, you know, again, what you breathed and, you know, the, um, the low pressure, and et cetera. Like, has it, has it all been fully quantified? Yeah, I mean, I, there's been quite a bit of work uh, on the physiology of high altitude that has been published over the, you know, a lot of that work started in the 1960s, the first American geographic played a role. In. And so that's, you know, the impacts on the human body are fairly well understood. There's still opportunities to fill in some holes, but, you know, it's been less well documented that the, the climate side and the atmospheric side uh, has been less well studied. And those are some voids that we're trying to fill with the expedition and the subsequent data analysis. I've heard on Everest, uh, there's a lot of garbage and stuff that's been discarded, oxygen tanks, and, you know, God forbid, maybe even like people that have died up there, et cetera. But is it, is it messy up there? Is it pretty clean? Um, and I don't know. Is there any way to, uh, any way or reason to monitor what's up there and uh, clean it up periodically? Or is that not at all part of the mission? Well, uh, there's no question that over the years, uh, waste and trash has accumulated. And this, you know, was very bad at, at base camp um, up until probably the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And uh, I, I, to be honest, I uh, was pretty amazed at how clean base camp was in the area around base camp. There's been a monumental effort on behalf of uh, climbing uh, companies themselves, the uh, government of Nepal, the national park, and, and local communities to clean up a base camp surrounding environments. And, uh, and progress is being made higher up on the mountain. Uh, it's a lot more challenging at Camp 2 because this is above the Kumbu Icefall. And um, standard procedure is to carry trash and, and used equipment and goods back down through the icefall. And that's tremendous uh, physical. It's been a little slower cleaning up too, but there's progress, only progress being made. And, um, and then, you know, there, there still is uh, a, a bit of a, there's still quite a bit of trash up at um, South Call. But uh, again, that's vastly improved from what it has been, is my understanding. And oxygen containers are carried down and, and expeditions are um, given, they're, they're given incentives to bring trash down. And so it's a process. And I think we're seeing it get a little better each year. And that's a very encouraging. Yeah, that's great. All right, now to the, the climate insights. So we talked a little bit about you said, uh, you know, a lot of ozone up there, solar radiation. Um, for our overall climate, you know, now that we have literally like an eye of the sky up there, what are we seeing that we didn't see before? Well, what we're seeing now with these stations is, is that 
uh, we tell exactly when the subtropical jet stream, for example, is over the over the region. And yeah, we we can infer this times in the past by using satellite images, using what we call reanalysis data from the models. Uh, but to, to have that eye on the sky is uh, critically same thing with the solar radiation, the temperature, and these other variables, uh, providing just tremendous insight at what the climate is at the highest reach of the planet. And I think that, I mean, I shared some of the initial insights already with respect to intense solar radiation, uh, but what we're also learning is that uh, a lot of the so-called disappearances of climbers in the past have you know, been fully explained may be tied to wind gusts, high wind gusts. In fact, may have blown people off the mountain or off, uh, certainly off their feet and caused a fall. And so uh, that, that is a, a very relevant finding. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the hope is that these stations continue to operate for some period of time. And so, so we don't just get a snapshot of one year or so, but can have a longer term uh, insight view into the weather on the roof of the world. And this will become particularly important as our colleagues at the University of Maine begin to analyze the ice core, the highest ice core in the world that, uh, that they recovered from the South Call because the weather stations provide a critical context of the current climate and, um, and that aids in the interpretation of the climate going back in time and the reconstruction from that ice core. And so I'm, I'm really excited to begin to work more closely with them as the labs open back up as we get data coming back from that ice core. Um, one more question on, on Everest. Um, how many weather stations are there, you know, geographically spread out over Everest? And are you able to create like a picture now of the climate of most of the mountain and how it varies around the mountain? Well, that's a great question. And um, certainly we set up the network of five stations um, on the Nepal side that uh, extends all the way down to the lower Kumbu and the town of Fortse. There's also, um, there are several stations maintained by a French glaciologist, uh, Patrick Vagnon, and colleagues from Tribuvan University in Nepal um, that are on the way up to base camp. And so combined with those, we're, we're definitely um, proving, substantially improving the density of observation. And also the Chinese have been working on the north side of Everest. In fact, last year, right after we had installed the station at Camp 2, this 21,000 and just over 21,000 feet, 6,000 feet. And let's see, I'm getting my conversions all mixed up, so I'll stop there. But I've been thinking in meters, uh, but it's just over 21,000 feet. When we installed that weather station, we returned to base camp, and we were super excited. It was a great spot. The installation went well. And uh, we shared the news with our expedition leader, Dr. Paul Majewski, and uh, he pat us on the back and said, congratulations. But I just had word from our Chinese colleagues on the other side, they installed a station 100 meters higher than you. And so that was just last year. And so it's uh, fantastic to see efforts um, taking place on the Chinese side as well. And we are in communication with, with those researchers and continue to analyze the data. The findings come out. We have not uh, yet 
gotten access to the data from the Chinese station for this year working with Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is hopefully, you know, Nepal and the other countries that own parts of the mountain essentially um, will say we, we demand a collaboration so we can see the climate around the mountain at all times. I'm sure that would lead to a lot of interesting science because I don't know if anyone that, that's mapped a mountain with or, you know, put a bunch of weather stations on a mountain that looked at the climate and how it how it's different around the different faces and the different rocks and crags and all that. It'd be very interesting to see. Absolutely. And, and when combined with the work that our mapping team has uh, completed with the drone mapping and the helicopter LIDAR mapping, this is the most detailed mapping and analysis of a glacier in the world. And I'm sure Faye can some of those resources uh, from the National Geographics. But I mean, there's an incredible opportunity here to tell the story of you know how the Kumbu Glacier on the south side of Mount Everest has uh, changed over the last 50 years with these different data sets, and you know to take the viewer into the glacier using virtual reality and to have these sorts of immersive experience, see up close and personal how the landscape is in models think it may change the data sets that are collected terrific scenario and putting people putting people in this environment incredibly different. well very good um how can people uh, check out you know I, I know national geographic is you know a film of it so expedition everest where is it? You know, how can people look at it and find out more? The Expedition Everest uh, TV special premieres on Tuesday, June the 30th at 10 p.m. Eastern on the National Geographic Channel. And uh, I encourage people to tune in to that to learn more about our, our team and the science completed. The National Geographic also has a comprehensive website with uh, data, real-time data links to the weather stations and uh, a number of videos highlighting the work that each team has completed. And, uh, and so I you know, certainly encourage your, your listener to check out those resources as well. Well, very good. Well, Baker, um, last thing, any, uh, what, what's your next, uh, your next mission? Do you have any other places where you're going to be going or uh, are you going to be you know, back home for a while, hanging out, looking at data? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I, you know, Tom and I both had uh, planned to be back on Everest uh, this spring in April and May, uh, may you know, maintaining the weather stations, uh, doing some upgrades and, and just checking on things. But uh, of course, the world has changed a bit uh, in the last few months. And, uh, and so that expedition is on indefinite hold. And so I'm taking advantage of this time to uh, just be out at our my family's farm and um, doing lots of research, uh, writing up results from the exciting data that we've been collecting. Also been growing a, a big garden and spending a lot of time with, with, with the family. And so I think, you know, beyond that, I mean, I do hope to get back to Everest uh, at some point. Uh, and then other regions that uh, we're beginning to look at for possible field expedition, the Karakoram, Pakistan, this river valley. This is a uh, studied high mountain in the world and huge given headwaters of Indus, major rivers there. And also in South America, returning to the Andes, Chile, trying to improve our sunspheric hydro, uh, hydrological variability. Well, very good, Baker. Thanks for coming on. It's a really cool project that you've been involved in. I appreciate it. Hey, Richard, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and I enjoyed it very much, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Oh, yeah. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.